Hey, everybody, welcome to episode two of Waking Up to Narcissism. And I do have some music. I have some music that uh, I'm working on with a an amazing composer, and we're going back and forth with some things. And maybe by episode three, you'll hear some cool music that's uh, right now leading up to the beginning of the episode. But for now, let's just get right to it. I, I just want to just talk for a second. I, I have to tell you, I was truly overwhelmed by the feedback, by the amount of support and downloads and all those wonderful things to episode one. And I know now that when I started my virtual couch podcast uh, four years ago, I, I didn't, it was a brand new podcast. I didn't start out with a lot of feedback. And so sometimes I would say, oh, I'm so grateful for the support. But holy cow, the support for Waking Up to Narcissism is blowing me away. And I'm not saying that from a, hey, how neat is that, guys? But I'm saying it by, I just want to say, I see you, I hear you, I appreciate you. And the I, the emails, the number of emails alone far surpasses the number of emails I get for an episode of The Virtual Couch. And I, I now I get a ton of those too. But again, not saying that uh, sounding like a, the narcissist that I am trying to, to talk about, but it, the emails are just—they uh, break my heart. They—they're also so empowering. They're—I I, want to just read every single one of them. And one that I get a friend recommended your new podcast. I listened to it three times in a row with my mouth hanging open, and then dove into my other podcast episodes about gaslighting and differentiation and a few others. And I just loved how this person said, "I couldn't believe how many stories or examples you told where I just said sometimes out loud." Oh my gosh, that's exactly what he says. And she said, do they have a secret script book or something? And it's amazing. And then I just have so many questions. And so I, I really feel like the podcast, Waking Up to Narcissism, is going to evolve over time. I have such big plans. I have guests that are going to come on. I have people that are living um, in, maybe even in a relationship with a narcissist or people that have just gotten out or are co-parenting or have divorced or trying to make it work and all of the above. And so I can't wait to do that. I'm also getting some new equipment. So breakdown, even I want to be able to show you and have some video on uh, real examples from texts and emails that I received and really go into detail and break down what gaslighting looks like and, and just kind of my thoughts on that. But I think I'm going to need to do just, I don't know, every three or four episodes, just do a strictly just a question and answer from the pure number of emails that I get. So I just want to thank you. I want to tell you, please keep sending the emails. I, and if I haven't gotten back to you, just know that I am reading every single one of them. And they have just titles that are, you know, married to or a narcissist, people that are following up about the narcissistic support group, or just that I'm looking at these right now. And there's just, uh, I don't know if I'm happy or if I'm trapped is another title. Several of them that just say questions, gaslighting examples. Yeah, not sure if I'm happy or if I'm comfortable. There are just so many. And, and so I want to get to those. And so today I'm going to answer a couple of emails and I've already recorded one part. So I think I'm almost giving you a forewarning that I get one question and I think I go on for about 15 minutes and I talk about, in essence, what creates the narcissist, the nature or the nurture. And, and I just want you to know, I even had a couple of emails where people weren't quite sure, am I saying stay or am I saying go? And I'm just saying, I, I want to meet you wherever you're at. And I think in the trailer, and maybe some people didn't listen to the trailer. So in episode one, when I'm talking about these five rules or five ways to stay engaged with a narcissist, and I think I even framed that or phrased that maybe not as accurately as I had hoped. And so if you haven't listened to the trailer, and that's absolutely fine. I don't listen to a lot of the trailers of some of the new podcasts that I subscribe to. 
But the whole point of this podcast, Waking Up to Narcissism, is that I often know, I know that when people come into me and they've gone and they think their spouse may be a narcissist and they have Googled it, that in, and I, can't, I think I joked in the trailer that what you're reading almost says, don't finish this paragraph, just leave. And I realize people coming to me, they don't feel, it's not that easy because they have history with people or sometimes they do feel stuck. Sometimes they're stuck financially or sometimes they're, the, the fam, their family is just too involved or enmeshed or they're too, it's just too big of an of a issue right now. And so people go on this journey where they just want to learn as much as they can. They devour information. And that's one of the parts of just finding yourself. Because when you are with a narcissist, when you're in a relationship with a narcissist, I don't feel that you even realize the loss of self because you spend so much time and effort and emotional calories and energy in trying to figure things out, how to be the buffer between uh, you and between the narcissist and your kids, or just trying to figure out how do I present my data in a way that then finally he will understand. And, uh, and one of the questions we're going to get to in a little bit is somebody had asked me, do I, they felt like I was being a little bit unfair from a gender standpoint by just continually saying he in the episode one. And so we talk about that, but just for the sake of ease, I am going to typically say he as the narcissist and she as the spouse. But I absolutely know that there can be women that are narcissists and the men that are in these situations and hang in here and in just a few minutes, I'll get to that question. And that's where I go off on my how is one created? Gaslighting is a childhood defense mechanism. And I just give a ton of information on abandonment and attachment. And I love talking about that. But I just wanted to come on first and just say thank you. And please keep sending the information. So today, I think I'm going to just answer a couple of the questions. And uh, I tried actually to get an episode out this week. And so with my virtual couch podcast, I go every week. And I had plans on going every other week with waking up the narcissism. But I really feel like thanks to the the overwhelming amount of support, I want to find that time to, to get episodes out weekly because it looks like there are people that just have so much of, uh, they just want to know and I want to provide all the information that I can. I also want to touch on last night we had a the group call and I would mentioned that if women are, feel like they are in relationships with people with narcissistic tendencies, traits, or full-blown personality disorder, that I do have a group. It's a private group and we do a every other week group call that is just phenomenal and amazing. And so there was <clears throat> there were a couple of things that were brought up last night that I thought were just very fascinating. One of them was just this concept of isolation. And in the world of narcissism, we call it sequestering, where people will often feel like they are just so alone that they have no one to talk to. And that is because as they talk to or open up to people, the narcissist is very aware and, and fearful of being exposed. They, they, part of that gaslighting is the, the narcissist, again, will say the, the wife in the situation is the spouse or the, and the husband's the narcissist, where he will just so routinely say things you know, about, man, I, I hope you're not telling people about us or that's none of their business or we need to keep these things uh, here within the home or that person's crazy. Or if you talk to that person, then, okay, well, I get to talk to them too. And I'll tell them all the things that you do wrong. And so they just sequester. And then the person just is there in their own head. And just a little bit of psychology 101 is just that concept of when we don't have an outlet, a safe outlet to talk to people, to express ourselves, that when thoughts are just left to just ruminate in our head, they do not go to the, and we lived happily ever after. And sometimes I forget that we just don't know this unless we are talking about it or unless we're researching this. But our brains evolved from times of, in essence, they're a don't get killed device. Our brains are designed to, to warn us, to look out for 
the unknown. They were initially designed to be careful so that you don't walk around a corner and there's a woolly mammoth or a saber-toothed tiger or a band of marauders. At the core, the brain is constantly looking out for things to, to warn us. That's what the root of anxiety is in general. Now, the more um, that we've evolved as society, the more that our brains have evolved, we now we're worrying about things that most likely are never going to happen. So we're worried about everything from losing a job to getting a terminal illness to what if something happens to somebody in my family. So we can find ourselves just on this constant state of alert, which again is the root of anxiety. So one of the things that's really difficult or sad about people that are in relationships with narcissistic people is that they are their their baseline um, stress level, their cortisol, the cortisol is the that stress hormone, their cortisol level is high. And so it's constantly at this, uh, this high state. And so when your cortisol level is already high, cortisol is the thing that uh, tells your brain that there's danger ahead. And so the higher the level of cortisol that you have, the less engaged your, your prefrontal cortex is, the part of your brain that's logically thinking, and the more active your amygdala is. And the amygdala is the fight or flight response. So if you always find yourself walking on eggshells or are worried about what do I need to say or what's he going to do to the kids or say to the kids or what's he going to say when he walks in the door, then your brain is constantly in this almost on the verge of fight or flight mode. And that's why when all of a sudden you are met with some situation and you feel like you can't even think or you're just reacting, that's because that's what your brain is doing. It's trying to protect you. And there's some interesting long-term studies. If you go over on my virtual couch podcast, and I'm sure we'll talk about this down the road on waking up the narcissism as well. There's even some studies that show that long-term emotional abuse or long-term uh, relationships with people with narcissistic traits or tendencies then have an effect called complex post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD, on the, the person that is in the relationship with the narcissistic individual. What that looks like is the, some brain scans show over time that to the person in the relationship with the narcissist, their hippocampus, which is this little part of the brain that has to do with things like memory, that their hippocampus actually shrinks, uh, especially short-term memory. And then their amygdala, again, this fight-or-flight mode, this, uh, this reptilian brain or Neanderthal part of the brain, is enlarged because over time, your own brain is starting to evolve to say, my memory isn't necessarily um, needed, but my fight-or-flight response is. And so I, I just want to put that out there because sometimes if you just feel like you're going crazy, it's not just the gaslighting. But it's also that your brain is slowly adapting to, to be more into this fight or flight mode. And I feel like that's why oftentimes when people do get a break from the narcissist, that they just start to feel more clarity. And to, to put a pin on that concept of what happens in complex post-traumatic stress disorder, that yes, as you get away from the narcissist, that your baseline cortisol level does begin to lower. And what actually happens is your, your hippocampus starts to get back to normal fighting weight and your amygdala starts to calm down, which is why it becomes so important to get that self-care or that personal time or that space away. Oftentimes when people do take intentional separation, then that allows that cortisol level to slowly start to shrink and they start are lower. And so they start to feel like they can just be more of themselves. Uh, so again, that's where I just want to say, man, I see you. I, I see what you're going through. I hear you. I talk to people about it literally on a daily basis. 
and the amount of emails that are coming in are just, it's phenomenal. And so I just hope that we can make this podcast into something that will just be a real tool and can help you not feel crazy. And in part of this, again, I know you're on this journey of knowledge and I want you to know there is zero worry or there, this is not a scarcity mindset for those of us that are in the helping profession. I hope that you listen to all the podcasts. I hope you read all the books because the more information you get, the more validation you get that you're not crazy, that these things are real. Again, going back to this email that I was talking about where how many times did this person that was listening, how many times did she say, oh my gosh, it's like you're reading my mind. Those are the emails that I get constantly. And again, that's what leads me to want to do more podcasts because the information that you're consuming, I, I hope that the more you're realizing that to those that are in these relationships, they really are textbook. And they're called textbook because they are so consistent that, yeah, you would put them into a textbook. And I don't, I feel bad when I say that at times where the person that is in that relationship will then often go to the, why did I not know? Or why am I still in the relationship? Or that type of thing. But the point is more that the more you hear this information, the more that it, it lines up to what you're going through, hopefully the more you will start to trust yourself and trust your gut. And as I talked about that complex post-traumatic stress disorder, I'm wondering how many things are going on in your mind right now, because one of those is, as you you are most likely the person who gets into a relationship with someone with narcissistic tendencies or traits, that most likely you're a very empathetic, sensitive person. We're going to talk about that down the road too. Go find the episodes I've done on the virtual couch on HSP or highly sensitive person. If you Google HSP, highly sensitive person and narcissism, oh boy, get ready to go on a days of reading and listening because it's this concept. There's a wonderful book called The Human Magnet Syndrome where we often say that the pathologically kind often then when they meet with the pathological narcissist, then that's where this human magnet is formed. And you know what? I can't lie. I, I want to get an episode out this week and I know I'm just talking, but let me pull that book up, The Human Magnet Syndrome. All credit to Ross Rosenberg. It's called The Human Magnet Syndrome, Why We Love People Who Hurt Us. And here's the part that I'm talking about right now. In chapter three, Ross talks about codependency. And, uh, and oftentimes that has a real negative connotation in certain uh, situations. But in here, Ross says, codependency is both a relationship and an individual condition that can only be resolved by the codependent. Many codependents are attracted to and maintain long-term breakup resistant relationships with pathological narcissists. Most codependents are selfless and differential to the needs and desires of others over themselves. Does that sound familiar to anybody listening? He says they are pathologically caring, responsible, and sacrificing people whose altruism and good deeds are rarely reciprocated. And uh, Ross goes on to say, while some codependents are resigned to their seemingly permanent relationship role, others actively, albeit unsuccessfully, attempt to change it. And these people become preoccupied with the opportunities to avoid change, and or control their narcissistic partners. And despite the inequities in their relationships and the consequent suffering, they do not end their partnerships. Codependency is not just limited to romantic couplings as it manifests itself in varying degrees in most other significant relationships. And which brings me to, there were questions about, are you going to talk about parent-child narcissistic relationships? Yes. Are you going to talk about um, narcissistic bosses? Absolutely. 
And so then Ross goes on and to say, and I, I do, I so think about this uh, next paragraph quite a bit. He talks about pathological narcissism. And he says, although pathological narcissism is not a new term, he said, I use it in this book to represent a person with one of the four disorders. Pathological narcissists are people who fit the diagnostic criteria for either narcissistic, borderline, antisocial personality disorder, or, or other active addicts. And so he goes on to talk a little bit about the varying degrees, but he says, all pathological narcissists to varying degrees are selfish, self-consumed, demanding, entitled, and controlling. He said, they are exploitative people who rarely or selectively, that is such a key, selectively reciprocate any form of generosity. And this is where we start to get into that textbook or the things that I, I feel fairly confident when, you, when they selectively reciprocate a form of generosity. And if, again, back in the trailer, I talked about it's, in essence, what's the angle? If all of a sudden he is kind and nice and is willing to be extremely generous, is he wanting to uh, buy something? Is he wanting sex? Is he wanting, what's the angle? And I know that can sound so dismissive, maybe coming from me, but this is where we get back into, it's, it's pretty textbook. So Ross says, pathological narcissists are only empathetic or sensitive to others when doing so results in a tangible reward for themselves and or when it makes them feel valued, important, and appreciated. You'll often find the narcissist that will go and, and definitely help and serve others, but then feel like they're not appreciated at home. And it's because they're just seeking, they're serving others just for that reward, or just for that validation. Uh, and I can already hear if any of you are the kind, nice people, you're saying, I, I do things because I want the reward or I want the, the but it, it's, it, you're doing things from your core that because you want to help others, the pathological narcissist does them purely, simply 100% for that. Hey, now I can tell everybody how amazing I am. So then Ross goes on to say, because narcissists are deeply impacted by their personal shame and loneliness. But here's the key, he says, but consciously unaware of it, they do not end their relationships. Positive treatment results are rare for narcissists. And so I just feel like that is such a, a powerful piece about this human magnet syndrome. So let me get on to a couple of questions, then we'll probably wrap this episode up and I might just try to get it out today. And, uh, and we're going to see if we can do these things weekly, just because again, I see you, I appreciate the feedback. And on that note, and I'm going to be super open and vulnerable, and I, I feel even silly saying this, but I, I noticed already in just the small amount of reviews or that sort of thing that people have given that it's either people are saying they're hitting the four or the five star review, or it's the absolute one star. And I've get I've received some of those reviews as are those emails as well, and I will share those at some point. But those are ones saying you are just giving the you're feeding the flame. One of them says feeding the flame of the of my wife who uh, you don't understand how bad she is and so here's the person even gaslighting me through email and then they will show me they will rate the podcast extremely low and so i i'm i guess i'm i feel so look at this i feel so bad to, i'm almost putting out this plea to hey if you like what you're seeing it would be great if you rate it or if you write a nice review because I want to get out ahead of that in hopes that uh, people will see that people are finding some help through the podcast and that if they are only seeing these negative reviews, even they may not go take the time to look and see that it's the people that are saying that are in essence the narcissists that are almost wanting to gaslight through reviews, which is a fascinating principle in and of itself. But as I'm saying that, it will be hard for me not to go back and edit this part out because I feel like I was just saying um, almost in my own ego, you must like me, you must rate me well, you, you don't have to. 
All right, let me get to a couple of questions and we'll wrap it up and then uh, we will try to get to another episode next week and we'll keep this train rolling and please uh, please send me all of your comments, feedback, that sort of thing. All right, let's get to a couple of questions. One of the emails I received said, I wish the podcast was gender neutral. You make it sound like only men can be narcissistic with your examples. And I even found it uh, interesting. I responded back to the person. I thanked them and I didn't want to feel, I didn't want them to feel like I was gaslighting them because I, I said in my reply that I really thought or I had meant to make sure that when I give an example that I point out that, hey, in this scenario, I'm saying that the man is the one that is acting as the narcissist or somebody with narcissistic traits or tendencies. And in other situations, it would be the woman because I have absolutely run into both. So I think that question is so good. And I thought I would just uh, answer that. I get that question often. Are more men or women narcissists? They exhibit narcissistic traits or tendencies more, males or females. And uh, I hadn't really looked at the data in a while. My anecdotal data is, I think I responded back in this email, I feel like I see about 80, 20, 80% male, 20% female. So I did a little bit of digging. I found I found an old study, and this is from an article from observer.com from 2018, and I will put that in the show notes. So I'm going to literally be quoting that. I want to make sure that that is clear. But the article says that it's worth noting that men with this personality trait are often likely to become leaders because of their self-belief they hold, coupled with their wish to control, two of the defining characteristics of narcissism. So this self-belief and their wish to control. And it says, uh, don't they make powerful bedmates? It's this that makes the narcissist seem dynamic and successful, which of course the world applauds. And so it goes on that the narcissist receives praise and garners success and sees no reason to change. And the show keeps going on and on. But here's the, the data that they, they talked about. The University of Buffalo condensed 31 years of research on narcissism involving over 475,000 participants into a report concluding that even taking on uh, broad differences of age and background, that men are more likely to be narcissistic than women. So then the article goes on to say, so what, you might say, haven't bosses and leaders always been brass show-offs? And surely these character traits make them better at what they do. And again, there is some truth here, but the real picture gets more complicated. According to the researcher Emily Grishvala, assistant professor of organization of human resources at the University of Buffalo School of Management, narcissism is associated with various interpersonal dysfunctions, including an inability to maintain healthy long-term relationships, unethical behavior, and aggression. In other words, our narcissism could be a sign that something is deeply wrong, both in our relationship with ourselves and therefore our relationship with the world. And I love the points that the article makes. They go on to say, in fact, it's not hard to explain why men more than women are more likely to be narcissistic. You just have to look at how we're socialized. So many boys grow up in families where both their assertiveness and their desire for power are praised. And meanwhile, these same traits are discouraged for girls. I think this is that part that goes into a little bit of, is it nature or nurture? And I definitely feel both. And they say this starts practically at birth, that you can note how adults interact with a baby. Is it a boy or a girl is often the first question out of our mouths. And then we play and act with the child accordingly. We affirm these so-called masculine traits for boys over those seen as feminine, such as all the different ways that a person can display sensitivity. And how many of us heard the, the things like real boys don't cry or uh, the strong and silent type or just rub a little dirt in it from our parents as we grow up, not just one time over and over again. And according to this Observer article, they say it's like an instruction to cut that part of ourselves off, especially for the male. And so for so many people that grew up in that culture, then they go on to find that the, their fear and sadness and vulnerable feelings weren't acknowledged or even allowed 
allowed. And this might have led to a development of what psychologists call a false self. And the false self is this mask. And we introduced this concept so often talked about in narcissism of putting on the mask. So this false self is the mask that's used to protect ourselves from these hard to admit feelings that are shameful or unmanly or difficult to process. And in fact, it's said that then we may be so cut off from our feelings that we don't even know that they're there at all. And then we feel ill at ease without ever knowing exactly why. So this gets so good. And so I'm grateful for this question. And I hadn't even planned to go this direction in this episode. But if you really start looking at that false self or this mask to protect ourselves, I remember reading once that gaslighting is a childhood defense mechanism. And I know we haven't done an episode on gaslighting yet. I've done several on my virtual couch podcast, but I'm guessing that if you are listening to a Waking Up to Narcissism podcast, you're familiar with gaslighting. We'll go into a lot of details on this in a future episode. But just think of that. Gaslighting is a childhood defense mechanism. So if we go way back in time, and for anybody that is new to what I like talking about, and uh, this, I guess I should have reversed that. If you're familiar with the, the virtual couch or other things I've done, I often talk, I give this big speech about abandonment and attachment wounds. So I'm going to give it right now, but I want to give it in the context of imagine from a narcissist standpoint. And again, we're talking nature or nurture, what really is coming at play here, but childhood abandonment, that gaslighting is a childhood defense mechanism that's just been carried out into adulthood. So I often say that in a healthy relationship with your kid, or for any of us, that we go from self-centered as kids, and the goal is to move to self-confident with the right mix of modeling from our parents and society, and also just being able to um, develop empathy or learn emotional sensitivity, whether we're viewing it in our home or we're um, surrounded by people that are expressing this emotional empathy or so it's a process to learn that. Now, some people have it more inherent and we'll talk down the road about a group of people that I'm, I love and I'm fascinated by. They're called highly sensitive people, HSPs, or the, the scientific term is sensory processing sensitivity. And highly sensitive people are often more likely to find themselves in relationships with people with narcissistic traits or tendencies because they are so kind. But again, that's a topic for another day. But let me stop, step back and go into my abandonment and attachment speech. So we're going to take you all the way back to birth. When a baby is born, when they exit the womb, they are programmed to express themselves to get their needs met. Because if they don't get their needs met, then they will die. If they don't eat, they die. So pre-programmed into us is this concept that abandonment equals death. And it sounds dramatic, but it is true. And especially when you are coming from the womb. So babies cry and scream and express themselves just basically saying, somebody do something. I have no idea how to take care of myself. And so when a baby cries and screams, then we pick it up and we feed it and we change its diaper and we hold it and we coddle it and we say nice things to it. And thank goodness they smell good and they're cute and they make fun noises. So even when they blow out their diaper and it goes all the way up their back, hypothetically speaking, you still just love that little baby. So when the baby expresses their, themselves, then we meet their needs. And just think about that for a second. So it is pre-wired and now programmed from the factory setting, and then just reinforced over and over again that when I express myself, my needs are met. So when I often say that when we hit two, three, four years old, now welcome to the world of abandonment. 
So I talk about this as two different tracks kind of form at this point. So we've got the attachment track and the abandonment track, but this is still all coming from a position of we need to express ourselves to get our needs met because if we don't get our needs met, we will die. Abandonment equals death. So in this welcome to the world of abandonment track, as a kid hits three, four, five years old, now they can even express themselves with words. They can say, I would like to stay up past my bedtime, or I would like to have candy before dinner, or I would rather not go to uh, Sunday school today. I want to just go outside and play with my friends. And what do we say as parents often? No, we, you know, we, we got to do this, or no, you can't have the candy champ, or no, it's time to go to bed. And so just let that one sit for a minute. So coming from this position of I express myself, I get my needs met. Well, now the kid can even talk. And, but all of a sudden, we're not jumping at their every whim. We're not meeting their needs. So think about that. Every little kid, I always say, is a, an egocentric, bless their heart, little narcissist in that moment. And that's not said as a negative thing or judgment. It just is a fact that when kids are small, the world literally revolves around them because they are still feeling like if I don't get my needs met, I will die. So this is all about me. It's a survival mechanism. It's survival instinct that is kicked in. So when we say no, then, and if this kid feels like the world revolves around them because they don't have empathy, they don't have an understanding of what's going on in the world, that if you're telling them no, then it's got to be about them that they must not be worthy of that candy before dinner or staying up late or whatever else they're asking for. And so this is on them. So they must all of a sudden be unlovable. They must be broken or something must be wrong with them. Again, they're not consciously thinking this. This is survival 101. This is an instinctual move. And so that's over here with the abandonment uh, piece. So now that leads us over into what I call the attachment track. So now they have to get their needs met or they will die. So what does that look like? All right, if mom and dad are saying no, then I got to figure out how to get them to say yes. So I'm either going to cry and scream, and then finally they give in. I think as a parent, we all know that one. And that just gets reinforced over and over again, that I will double down on my crying and screaming until I get my needs met. And all of a sudden that becomes part of their programming, that if I just lose my mind, if I express myself, if I have these emotional outbursts, then people will meet my needs then of course I'm going to continue to have this programmed into me, even into adulthood, that I'm going to get angry and I'm going to lose my stuff just to get my needs met. Or what's another way that these attachment wounds show up? Do you become the, the straight A student and you get your praise and you get your needs met because you're smart? Or do you become the peacekeeper? Do you become the, the withdrawn emo kid that then your parent only then recognizes you when they're coming over and saying, hey, bud, like, why aren't you participating with the family or life in general? So this is the part where we're all trying to figure out how to get our needs met. And that's how we show up. If we are angry and we get our needs met and that's reinforced, then we're going to continue to use anger as a tool. If we're going to be sad, if we're going to be funny, all of these things are ways to get our needs met. So now we go forth into our teenage years, into our adult years, and we carry these patterns forward. So let's go look at the abandonment one. So if all of a sudden somebody is not responding to me the way I want them to, and I'm talking in marriage or at work, if you put yourself out there, if you say, I, I would really like to go to a movie tonight, and your spouse says, yeah, I don't really feel like up to it then we're still, we have, still have this programming that just says, man, they just must not like me. I must be unlovable. I must be very hard to deal with that they don't even want to go to a movie with me. And instead of just being aware that it could just be, 
imperfect world, imperfect, just people doing people things. That person could be tired. They could be stressed. They could have their own stuff going on. But if they don't respond the way we want them to, we immediately take it on as something is wrong with me. I was given the speech. I was speaking to a church congregation a couple of weeks ago. And as I'm literally laying out this abandonment and attachment speech, I brought up the point that I'm standing there. I'm a 51-year-old man. I'm a professional. I speak on this. I love this topic. I've been married for almost 31 years. And my wife didn't happen to be there at that talk because she was at home taking care of some other things. And I said, I'm literally telling you about the way abandonment wounds work. And my first initial thought is my wife didn't come. I wonder if she really just doesn't like watching me speak. And, and so that's programmed. I'm aware. I'm aware that that's not the case. She's seen me speak a thousand times. And she's even literally heard that exact thing that I was talking about that day several times. So it makes sense that she wasn't there. But where these abandonment wounds are so programmed into us, that's often our reaction. And so the attachment side, and I'll button this up and I'll get back to the question that we initially paused about male and females and narcissists and gaslighting as a childhood defense mechanism. But then on that attachment side, we go throughout life trying to figure out how do I show up to get my needs met? What kind of friend do I need to be to my friend group? What kind of uh, kid do I need to be around my parents? What kind of person do I need to be with my church leaders? What kind of person do I need to be to my teachers? And so all too often, we're taking on these different personas in all these different situations in order to get our needs met. When as a therapist, I'm trying to get people as, uh, as soon as we can. I want to say as adults, it would be amazing to get this as teenagers. But for people to really find out who they are, what makes them tick, what their values are about, what their sense of purpose is, not what they feel like they're supposed to do for someone else. So you can see then how this abandonment and attachment shows up into adulthood. So now let's go back to the initial question about men and women, who's a narcissist, and I'm talking about gaslighting. So now that you have this understanding of abandonment and attachment, oftentimes a narcissist will have had one or more parents who exhibit the same traits. So there's your, there's your nurture. And uh, that's how you were raised. If you did not see any empathy or taking ownership of your own behaviors modeled, then it can often be a case of you don't know what you don't know. And I've talked about this in some other episodes of podcasts, but one of the clearest examples that I think you can use to make so much sense of this is I, I once uh, had talked with someone, the mom goes to pick up a kid late at school and the kid had been standing there for an hour or two. And so then the, the kid, the daughter comes to the car and immediately says, I can't believe you forgot me. I can't believe you left me sitting out here. I'm so embarrassed. And the mom immediately cuts the kid off and says, um, hey, don't use that language. Don't, don't use that tone with me. Do you know what kind of a day I've had? And do you know what this is like for me? Think about that for a minute. So many things just happen in that, in that interaction. One, the person, the mom made it all about them. They also did not take ownership or accountability or express empathy that I am so sorry to leave you here for an hour or two. That would absolutely stink. I can't imagine what that was like. And finally, then just saying, hey, and I don't want to hear what you what your thoughts or feelings are. I don't want you to express your emotions. So in one simple exchange like that, so much was just taught to the teenager. And we do that to our kids all the time where we're so afraid to take ownership or we're so afraid to say my bad or you're right, I am so sorry, I got caught up in something else and I'm human. But instead, we like to project this, hey, don't, I don't want to hear it. And so, of course, our kids that are coming from this place of abandonment and attachment that already are not familiar with the plight of others around them, so empathy is a skill that needs to be learned. And then what do we teach them? Hey, I'm not going to take ownership for anything. This is your fault and don't you dare raise your voice at me. 
That's, you know, so we do this so often as parents and that's being done to us in society. People have such a hard time taking ownership of something and saying, you're right, my bad. And that comes from these deep-seated abandonment wounds because we come from childhood fearing that if we are, if we did something, if we get in trouble and our parents get mad at us, then we are not sure if they will just continue to be our parents or if they will go desert us and uh, leave us in the woods to forage for ourselves. I'm being a little bit facetious, but I hope you get the point that that is why it is so important as parents to express empathy, to take ownership of things and to model this behavior. And because your kid is already starting out life as a tiny little narcissist and that's no offense to them. That's their survival instinct. So gaslighting is a childhood defense mechanism. If a kid then has never seen modeled empathy or a parent saying, my bad, I'm so sorry, I didn't even think about that, I blew it, all those things, then the kid themselves learns that when they are getting, uh, when they're on the hot seat and they're getting in trouble, that they are going to deny, deny, deny. It wasn't me. It was my brother. It was my sister. I didn't mean to do that. I totally forgot. I didn't do that. And they just sit there and this, you hear about fight or flight, but there's a third one called freeze. And oftentimes they freeze. They, they're not going to take ownership because if they do, they're worried that they will get abandoned and they will die. They're not going to take the blame. They're going to just sit there and freeze mode until they can get out of something. Or they have this reinforced loop where if they say, oh, I didn't do it, and the parent wants to think the kid didn't do it because the parents want to think their kids are perfect anyway. So if they say, no, I wasn't the one that, that broke that lamp, and I'll give you some basic example. And even if they're the only ones that were home, if, if they were the, they're literally standing there, if they've got lamp clay dust on their shirt, but even as a kid, if they're like, I didn't do it. And if their parent says, I, I how or how did you didn't do it? You're the only one here. And they're like, I don't know how it happened. And then the kid sticks to that story because abandonment equals death. Then there's gaslighting. And then when the parent finally says, okay, I don't know how it happened, but if that's what you're saying to the little kid brain, they just think, I just pulled off a masterpiece there. I got away with this. And so I I'd so often then talk about too, that when that is happening in childhood and empathy and apologies and those things aren't modeled, that the kid continues to get away with it. And as a matter of fact, it gets reinforced. And that's the point where they start lying about so many things and they, they become little gaslighting machines onto the playground at, at uh, school or with their friends and they're the ones that are saying, oh yeah, my dad's a, a pirate astronaut who is busy playing Major League Baseball. And they come home, the friend comes over and they see the dad sitting there, he's out of shape and he's just reading the paper. And uh, they're like, hey, I thought your dad was a pirate astronaut baseball player. And yeah, yeah, he's just taking a break. It's not like the kid's like, nah, you're right. I made it up. And so they just stick to their story for dear life. And my point in that example is even friends or we all know people that we we're, we think that, that doesn't even make sense or that's not right. But we're not even going to argue it at times. It's not even worth our um, time or effort to, to say, all right, well, show me his baseball card and uh, let me see his pirate flag and what the moon mission was he on? We just go, oh, okay. And we just think, yeah, Jim, little Jimmy's a, it's a liar. But then we just don't press the issue and that little kid thinks they just got away with it. And the funny part is the next day they could have a completely different story. And I think that's the part that you see when you have been a victim of gaslighting for so long is the stories change. And when you try to point out something, they don't say, you're right, you got me. Then they say, I never said that. I can't even believe you thought that. Like, that's nuts. I, that's You're the one that needs some help. And so this gaslighting phenomenon just gets just 
and reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. And so it already started out as the kid's a little narcissist. Then it's reinforced because gaslighting is a childhood defense mechanism for survival. And then when it is just exacerbated and just relied upon over and over, and it wasn't modeled to begin with, you can see how then someone makes their way into adulthood and them not taking ownership of something and making someone else feel crazy in certain situations, they're even getting praised for that in corporate America or that sort of thing or whatever that looks like. So that was such a long answer to, hey, can you maybe be a little more gender neutral in male and female points about narcissism? So let's get to another question. Okay, let me tackle one more here. And this one, I had several that had to do with gaslighting examples. And so I'm going to read one and I'm going to make some comments about it because I had a few that were in this vein. This person talked about their husband's go-to is the, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand. I can't remember. So, and they so nailed it. They said that if there's something that then he doesn't want to talk about or address, then he will play dumb. And I had several questions that were asking people about how do you find the right therapist or, and this is a tricky topic because it does really help to have somebody that has a fair amount of experience. And the way therapy works is you go to college, you get your, get your bachelor's degree, you get your master's degree, and then you are an intern and you spend, you have to get 3000 hours, or at least this is my experience. And it's a a very similar experience for whether you're a licensed marriage and family therapist or a licensed clinical social worker or a licensed professional clinical counselor, where you have to get about 3,000 hours of clinical practice, in a sense, time on the couch under a clinical supervisor. And so you are able to present your cases to the supervisor. They help you with things that you may not be aware of. And by that point, then you take your licensing exams and, and you become a licensed therapist. So I'm not saying that you don't go to an associate or an intern because I have an amazing associate uh, intern, Nate Christensen, who has been on several of my virtual couch episodes, who is, is, I'm trying to get him, he's open for business, and I think he's an amazing therapist. And I saw clients when I was an intern for years, and that doesn't mean that I didn't know what I was working with, but I feel like it's very important to know that your, your therapist, your counselor, that they may be familiar with things like personality disorders, and hopefully they're putting something like that out on their Psychology Today profile or on their website. Or maybe you're going to them because you have heard them on a podcast. And so I think it is worth it to, to do a little research on your therapist because the, what I often hear, and I've experienced this, where the narcissist will often come in and they want to manipulate the therapist. And I talked about this on this group call last night as well, where to me, it, again, very obvious if I'm working with a couple, I bring the couple in together for the first session, then I'll see each one individually, then we're going to get back together as a couple and then move forward and, and do all the work. And when you get the individual in, I and again, I'm going to go with the wife is the, the non-narcissist, the husband's the narcissist for the sake of this example. I will get the wife in. She'll often talk about, I will notice the pathological kindness, the man, no, I do. I do lose my cool. I, I yell, I shut down. And, uh, but then I'll often talk about what were you like before the marriage? Were you one who just, uh, just yelled? Or were you one who just shut down? No, typically they were somebody that was so kind and they loved life and they were engaged in things. They just wanted a connection and to be with people. And so that, that's one where I will often say, okay, it sounds like that might be a little bit reactionary then. So tell me what you're typically reacting to. And then you will hear often that, well, it's the the fact that we have the same argument over and over, or the fact that he tends to feign ignorance or play dumb, or we've talked about this a hundred times, but the 101st, he still says, I have no idea what you're talking about. So you start to identify those patterns of gaslighting, but you're basically working with somebody who is saying, 
I, I need help. I worry about how I show up. I want to be able to communicate better. I want to be able to figure this out. What's wrong with me? And then I will get the, the other person in, in this case, we'll say the husband, who will then say, oh my gosh, uh, I didn't even realize you. And for, I'm saying in my case, you had this podcast and I was reading about you. And oh, I'm so impressed. Like, I've got all these questions for you. And already I'm thinking, okay, this is a little different. So maybe butter me up a little bit. And then we slowly start to move into the, yeah, I know. I know that we need to do some work and I know we need to do better. And I don't know if she told you, but uh, but she, I don't know, she sometimes she's pretty mean to the kids. You know, or sometimes she says these things. Or sometimes I'm just trying to be nice and she does this. And so the the tone is more about the other person. And in my magnetic marriage course, uh, my buddy Preston Pugmire says, you know, we don't take the course with your elbow, basically poking your partner with the elbow saying, huh, did you hear this? And I feel like that's the vibe I often get in that session. So the narcissist is trying to manipulate me to help me like, hey, we're, I know you get it, Tony. The, let me just tell you, let me fill you in on what, uh, what she's doing. And so it's just a completely different vibe. And so then when you get into counseling, and let me go back to one of these emails, I think it's so good. She said that we're on our third counselor. So when the counselor confronts him about his sarcasm, because he uses sarcasm, a lot of people use sarcasm or, or biting humor, that sort of thing to try to make a point. And then they say, I was just kidding. But how often are they just hiding something in that I'm just kidding phrase? So she said uh, that she that she said, okay, we've been to therapy before about this sarcasm. And he said, oh, I, I had no idea I was even doing it. I didn't realize it was an issue. And so then she said, to be fair, this is our, our third time in counseling for sarcastic, sarcastic comments. So the reason we're even here is because of this. And so the person then plays dumb and it says, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize that's the case. So I have this um, not very eloquent concept or phrase where oftentimes what I see in therapy is that if we are doing my four pillars of a connected conversation or emotionally focused therapy, or someone then really is able to open up, let's say the spouse, the wife in the situation and say, when you do this, it hurts me and here's why. And then the person said, oh my gosh, I never knew that it affected you that way. I really wish that I had known that before. I'm so sorry. Let me be specific. My wife gave me permission to talk about this a long time ago, and I think it's a pretty fascinating example. We, she, we, she would often go to the dentist, and she takes wonderful care of her teeth, and but would just, I think, genetically has cavities and that sort of thing. I even feel bad saying it now, and I've, I've had her permission to say this. I've talked about it on a couple other episodes. So I would make jokes all the time. If somebody would even talk about, oh, you're a dentist or taking the kids to the dentist, I would say, oh, how about Wendy? Her teeth are like candy corn. I thought that was so clever because uh, the shape of the candy corn. Anyway, I digress. And so she wouldn't, you know, she'd give a little giggle. And then one time we were talking about having a more connected conversation. And she said that when she, when I express that, when I say that joke, that then she said, man, I feel really bad because I'm the one that has the teeth that I am not a fan of. And I feel like it just, it hurts me because I don't like my teeth. I'm thinking about them. I don't, so that just stings. And so then I just said, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. I never meant to make you feel that way, that to put that out there. I, I love you so much. I don't want you to feel that way. So I will not do that again. And I didn't until uh, I was going on a podcast to talk about narcissism and, and talk about this concept. And I literally had, I think I had texted her right before and I said, you can absolutely say no, but can I share this example? And the reason why this example is significant in my mind is that once I was aware of that, then oh, why on earth would I ever want to bring that up to her again? Why would I want to hurt her? And, and at that same time, I was working with a, a couple and the wife had said something about, we were talking about this concept and she was saying something about she, whenever he makes fun of my really curly hair, 
then I don't like it. And I feel like I've expressed that to him before. And then he looks at me, he's like, yeah, I'm just kidding. I, I mean, I don't mean it's as funny at the time. And I say, oh boy, what an opportunity this is to connect. You hear that that hurts her. And I, I looked at the wife and said, hey, tell me more. Take me on your train of thought. And she talked about what it was like growing up constantly with this incredibly curly hair and couldn't get it straight. And that's all anybody talked about. And so it just isn't funny to her. So I, I just said, okay, to the husband, what, a, what an amazing opportunity. And to thank your wife for sharing that with you and to hold that close to you and not go there again and let her know that I hear you. So what happens a few weeks later, they'd gone on a vacation, they'd been uh, with another couple and she comes in and she's like, okay, he talked about, he'd made the jokes about the curly hair again. And then he looks at me and he says, okay, but I, it wasn't a big deal. Like I, I it, it was different. It was funny. It was, we know this couple. And that's where I was just like, no, you, you don't do it again. When you hear her, then why on earth would you do that again? So in this example that we're talking about with this email about his sarcasm and him saying, oh, I had no idea. That, and then they go to a therapist. The therapist says, hey, this hurts her. And so then he says, oh, oh my gosh, okay, that, man, I, I didn't realize that's what I was doing. It's this concept where the narcissist will do it. They'll then will talk about it. Then they'll say, oh my gosh, I didn't know. And then they won't do it until they do it again. And that sounds so oversimplified. But that is something I recognized that it was even in my own behavior, that I didn't recognize my own dustings of narcissism in my relationship until it really sunk in that why on earth would I want to say or do something that hurts my spouse? And, and that requires me to take ownership that, yeah, I was doing that and I need to not do that again. And so when we come to this concept of this defense de mechanism, this denial, protecting yourself, that sort of thing, somebody that's constantly putting you down and when you say, I don't appreciate it when you put me down, they say, I'm so sorry. And then they put you down again the next day. Then again, that's not okay. It's not mature. It's not healthy. And that's where we need to start putting in place boundaries. And so it really is important to see somebody that really does know how to work within the realm of a personality disorder in a couple's relationship. All right. I think that's all we're going to do for today. So I really appreciate you being here and we're going to try to get this episode out as soon as I can. And then we'll be right back with another episode next week, but keep those emails coming. Head to TonyOverbay.com. You can go to the contact form there and send me, send me anything that you have suggestions or uh, questions or examples. And we'll break some of those down. And uh, I just appreciate you being here. And please do know, I hear you. I so hear you. And I appreciate you hanging in here with me. And I hope you're getting some good information from here. And if there are things that you feel like can help others, please, by all means, share this podcast so that others will start to do their own research and start to understand that they are not alone. And, oh man, I'm about to do this. I'm about to say, and that they will wake up to narcissism. All right. Have an amazing, amazing week.